Hey guys, we're going to talk about a lot of things in this episode, and there might be some spoilers, so be careful out there. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Why does Catherine not simply build a red snake wall in the veils? Wait, is Catherine using child soldiers as scouts? And if it comes to blows, will the exiled prince's troops ever break? With him leading them? Impossible! Any plan with more than four steps is not a plan. It is wishful thinking. Dread Empress Maleficent the Second. Once again, we get a nice uh, an epigraph that relates pretty directly to a lot of what happens in this chapter, even if it doesn't start right away. Uh, because in this chapter, we get uh, a couple different conversations. Um, we start off with Pat talking to a couple of her officers, talking to Nilan and Nock um, about the coming war and doing some light, friendly banter, of course, sort of built into that. Um, and then Kat meets up with, uh, Black and Captain in, uh, the town of Harper's Crossing to discuss some ongoing developments in, uh, a number of places and prepare for the campaign that the 15th is about to, uh, embark upon for real this time. No, you don't usually take the summary. You must be feeling pretty well right now. I am not, though, as well as our dear friend Catherine. Uh, as I mentioned, this chapter does not start off with directly relating to the epigraph because it starts off seemingly, although we find out later this is not quite the case, directly after, or perhaps the morning after, the previous chapter ends. Uh, the previous chapter ends with Pat noting that it was going to be a very good night because she was heading off to uh, share her tent with uh, a certain redheaded mage. Um, and this chapter begins with Kat saying to us, I was in an unusually good mood. She then goes on to explain some other, you know, less intimate reasons for her to be in a good mood before finally admitting that, no, it's basically just her new, uh, to use Black's term, paramour. Wait, Black hasn't had the chance to use it yet. Well, no, but I'm I'm referencing. It's you know pre-referencing him. Really, he's taking the com the term from me. I guess is how it's working. He is the very worst kind of monster. <laughs> so, Kalos the breadbasket of praise, I suppose, at this point. But it's had a difficult year agriculturally. Correct. Yeah, I would say so. Militarily, agriculturally, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Catherine is moving through Callow and says that the novelty had worn off. She's now sick and tired of looking at empty fields. And I think that's a really interesting adjective, empty. 
She doesn't say they're destroyed or burnt or ruined or devastated, which suggests to me that these aren't yet the fields that were destroyed by the retreating Kaluan resistance. But in that case, why empty? I'm from a rural place, and fields are never empty outside of the winter. Even after harvest, there's stubble in a lot of fields until the earth gets churned up again. But you wouldn't go past a field of corn or soybeans or corn and soybeans, if you're being fancy, and say, well, that's an empty field. There is nothing there. No, that's a, a field of corn, knee high by July, as all good men know. What, what is an empty field doing around here? I mean, is Catherine just, is she some kind of blind city girl who doesn't know that plants are people too? A field that's been harvested, even if there's, to use your term, stubble, um, I think a lot of people would call that empty, just meaning there's really nothing to see there. And yeah, these fields haven't been, maybe haven't been burnt if, you know, she's not using the term destroyed, like you said, but they may have been harvested early by a retreating army or by uh, an expanding sphere of influence. I you want to deny forage to your enemies, so these fields may have been stripped entirely because they had the time to do so. Much like a certain senior mage. Yep, exactly like a certain senior mage. <laughs> wow. Oh, I'm sorry, Catherine just starts talking about that while looking at the fields. It, mm, oh, sure, sure, sure. I mean, you know how it is. You look at an empty field and then think about your new lover and then start plotting a rendezvous with your leader in the legions of terror so that you can put down an insurrection ah young love it certainly is exactly the same in all its manifestations (laughs) yeah this is this is exactly how it was for me when i was marching off to war apparently (laughs) so as catherine's riding along up front with i believe knock and nilan yes with knock and nilan they're discussing the Silver Spears, whom it seems likely they will be forced into conflict with eventually. And we join the conversation as Nock makes the perhaps less than salient point that during the League Wars, Heliki messed up Prosser something good under Theodosius the Unconquered. Before the formation of the League of Free Cities proper. And... I'm not 100% on the timeline here, but that was a while ago, if you ask me. And I just feel as though military victories of a state centuries past are not necessarily indicative of their current power. I'm just not terribly concerned about how the Ottomans would fare in their next campaign, you know? Yeah, uh, I mean... That's fair. I think there's a bit more you can do with that if you live in a one of those uh, uh, like magically stagnant worlds where uh, technology doesn't advance for thousands of years for whatever reason. In this case, the gnomes, um, but where where things can be a little bit more static for that reason. So there there's something to be said. However, yeah, this is not the kind of thing that's directly related to what's going on now. Of course, with the 
not only this, of course, it's not only how static the world is, but also the fact that stories repeat themselves necessarily. And Heliki does have a potent story. Yeah, uh, Theodosius was, of course, sort of a was of course a tyrant, the tyrant back then, like militia, other tyrant, the Heliko one, um, and. Here we get Nox saying that uh, he, Theodosius the Unconquered was special and uh, he could have won this war with a pack of goat herds. Um, but then he says that tyrants, plural, so everybody who assumes this role, are a special breed of competent. So we get a tyrant for a good chunk of this series who is one of the best characters in this series. And Confirmed special boy. He is a confirmed special boy, and definitely, uh, Nock is right that he is a special breed of competent. He's not competent in the way that everyone expects. Like he's definitely got his own unique brand of competence. He he accomplishes his goals, but boy howdy, does he do them in a very special way. So I think Nock is more right than he means to be here, especially in reference to uh, uh, Kairos, but. Um, it makes me wonder how many tyrants are like that, where if they're each uh, very special in how they go about things, but tend to be, you know, if they lend, if the name lends itself to being a a very successful one uh, in a way that not all others do. It's just a it's just a funny comment knowing what we do about the only tyrant who's on screen during the the process the during the series. Speaking of things that are or perhaps have not been on screen. In the series, you're aware of the single most popular ship in the fandom, yes? Yeah, of course. Uh, we all stand Nox. Exactly. Well, we actually have one more moment of that here, or at least proof that Nox may have been well-suited to be a goat herd. Because Nilan makes a point that there's a fair difference between goat herds and Free City's men-at-arms. Better armor, for one. Fewer unwholesome entanglements with bovids, most likely. Though I'm not putting anything above soldiers if they campaign long enough. And we here in the Nox box know that Nox has certainly been campaigning long enough. And something, something Ox, am I right? You are correct. Also, listeners, from this point forward, if you have anything to say about the various relationships in the guide, uh, if you email us, please put in the subject line Nox box. Thank you. So I was hard on knock for basing his opinion of the league's strength on a long ago war. I'm also going to be hard on him for bad analysis here. The Silver Spears have 500 cavalry equipped in the Prosperin style. Also, they're very good because they're the Silver Spears, so they're extra better, but that's not mentioned here. Mm-hmm. Catherine thinks that'll be tricky, and the large orc grins nastily and says... The legions handled the knights of the old kingdom, boss. And, I mean, eventually, one time, and historically badly, they did handle them. But the historical record is not something to be confident about. I mean, the legions were performing better and better against the knights over time, it sounds like. I think they've he's got a right to some confidence in how they will handle cavalry going forward. But yeah, I think this is overplaying it a bit because it's important to remember that was also mostly specifically 
a legion designed to handle the cavalry and also an army headed by the black knight himself and with uh istrid there and sacker you know there, there's there's a lot to it <laughs> well you you say there's reason for confidence but the manifestation of confidence when we're discussing assessing how your foot will fare against riders is actually just an amelioration of anxiety. It is oh, something yeah. to always worry about. This, Catherine, you need to lose before people get too confident in you. Fortunately, Nilin is on our side in this and basically says, hey, yeah, the Calvins are better than the Procerans, of course, when it comes to cavalry, but the veteran legion, the Ironsides, is much better than this brand new legion that's less than half strength. And also, we don't have pikes. So there's a, there's some mitigation of, of Nox's con- overconfidence here. Uh, although, Kat says, what, what we don't have in pikes, we make up for in ogres. Nox has three lines of ogres who are, it tells us, armored in the thickest plate to ever come out of foramen and wielding warhammers that were outright taller than me. So... The thickest plate. These are ogres wearing, what, half an inch of metal? More? Just tanks with hammers at least two and a half feet tall. Mm-hmm. This is horrifying. I recognize that ogres are huge and limited and uniquely terrifying, but these things are larger than a lot of giants in a lot of fantasy. And I love every single one of them. There, yeah, I, I, I do understand where she's coming from, that cavalry is not uh, necessarily the biggest threat in the world to the ogres. Uh, but three full lines does mean 60 ogres total, which isn't a lot in terms of a full battlefield. It's enough to protect certain areas and to focus the cavalry in certain areas, but it's definitely not enough to win a battle against a massed cavalry charge, I would say. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out when the actual silver spears are on the battlefield and Kat's forced to implement uh, whatever tactics she and Juniper come up with and really strategically handle these these soldiers that are coming after her. And I mean, I'm sure it'll be very tactically interesting and involved. There's something suspicious about your wording there. What do you mean? That's how I always talk. That's just normal normal words, English, just saying what's on my mind. Okay. It just seems like it's going to be quite the battle. Oh, wait, never mind. I read a little further, and they can be overconfident. If you look in the Legion handbook, I guess, the War Doctrine taught at the college states that a Legion could take two to one odds and reasonably expect to come out on top if they had a full supply of goblin munitions. And I recognize that goblin munitions are a horrifying technological advantage, but I'm just deeply amused that the official policy is we're twice as good as everyone else. <laughs> and this is a rational and well thought through army. That's just great. Good I job, mean, Black. It is it is reasonable. Like you want your army to know what it or your sorry. You want your officers to know what they're actually capable of. This this is the... If this were... Ah, uh, yes. Every legionary hears this and is told this constantly, you'd say, okay, so a bit of propaganda. But if you're if the people who are supposed to be in charge on the battlefield are hearing this, 
it's just a assessment of the strength of the legions. I mean, we know that the the legions of terror are the most effective infantry force in Colernia when it comes to actual infantry forces, not necessarily people who fight on foot. And they also there's also something to be said for let's double check this, but the only military in the world that uses explosives. So yeah, two to being able to take on two to one odds when it comes to normal a normal field battle, I would I'd believe it. That's the kind of thing that the best, most modernized military you would think would believe it can do. Uh, especially when they do have, like you, you did mention this, but the caveat of if they had a full supply of goblin munitions, I think is very important. Because without that, I guarantee you they don't perform at nearly two to one odds across the board. But sure, if they have enough explosives to... Uh, we read later oh later this paragraph yeah they have enough explosives to basically wipe out the entire first wave of the enemy yeah i sure two to one i believe it which is good for the 15th especially because the 15th has 1700 legionaries in it which is less than half strength uh they are a tiny little fighting force out here coming to help with this rebellion plus, I mean, plus they've got some more only- issues if I remember correctly, there are only what twenty thousand soldiers that they're expecting to face ultimately. Yeah, and they're feeling what dozens of hundreds, a dozen hundred. It's not nothing. It's not nothing, and there are a technically other, speaking, there are a couple other legions floating around. So you know, just ambiently <laughs> hint of legion. Uh, but uh, as mentioned, Cat explains that. Um, the one of the main reasons that the legions are so ex- effective is because they are excellent when it comes to shock and awe tactics, um, specifically by destroying the first rank with a hail of sharpers and then the second rank with a wave of fireballs. Uh, and she says that enemy morale usually got shaken up, something fierce. Um, yeah, Kat, if you destroy the entire first two ranks of a military, uh, of an army, like a marching army, that routes most armies in history, I think. Like, instantly. If there's nothing that can be done and the first two ranks just drop dead, especially with flashy, showy fireballs and explosions, you've won that battle. <laughs> like, barring exceptional situations, that that pretty much does it. Uh, and she's <laughs> just, yep, enemy morale is shaken up. Uh, well, typically speaking, but... Not if you have the Taylor Swift of Named with you. The Taylor Swift of Named? is That's the Exiled Prince? It's my job to say words on the podcast. I, I guess it technically is. Uh, but Kat goes on to say that even in this situation where the front two ranks are destroyed and very much in like an American Civil War or World War One style demolition of an army, uh, an army commanded by the Exiled Prince would not rout. Um, and I, I don't know, is this, do you read this as her being a bit hyperbolic? Is it that his specific name is good at leading armies and they won't rout under him? Is it, is she claiming that heroes prevent armies from routing at all? I'm just wondering what, how exactly to take this comment. The full thing is all that, the broken morale, 
goes went out the window with a hero in the ranks. As long as the prince drew breath, no army he commanded would rout. I think that it is less hyperbolic than we would like it to be, but certainly of that school. My evidence is that things work differently for the heroes and the gods cheat. We see later this very paragraph that under Terribilis II, there was in fact an official decree from the tower forbidding the legions from giving battle when it seemed like they couldn't possibly lose. Because, of course, that's when they would have to lose. Heroes bring more story into it. And so your choices when you have a hero in your ranks are either you're going to win or you're going to be beaten down and destroyed and everyone will rally around the hero, both because of the pieces of story they know, even if they don't recognize how deeply this affects the world, and also because the story encourages that extra boost in morale and they'll rally and they'll come together and from the jaws of defeat they will snatch victory because the tragic last stand is not apparently the most common story in these parts. And so just by story reasons, but not necessarily his name, that army will not rout. Hmm. I, I suppose I can see that. I mean, it, basically you need the army there to be able to make a last stand, so, he has to, so it has to stay as long as he's there. Sure. I mean, it does create a single point of weakness, as we see later on. But yeah, I can see that. Weakness? Do you mean human fallibility because i'm pretty sure that someone who have the exiled princess caliber can push his people past that he's very confident and he's so hot so i hate him because he's just <laughs> he's too good looking yeah we got a lot of like i said the story. taylor swift of the <laughs> named all right yeah i guess that's true the exiled prince is the taylor swift of named speaking of unfortunate words that are out there and are not coming back Catherine says that his presence will in fact be such a powerful boost that his soldiers will walk unflinchingly into the grinder and fight like devils until either we were dead or they were wiped out. And uh, turn a phrase, speak of the devil, and he will appear. Mm -hmm. Or the German idiom of painting the devil on the wall. Don't paint the devil on the wall. Uh, Catherine... Is invoking devils here, and I just um, sure hope nothing comes up like that. Surely not. This army's led by a hero. There aren't going to be devils in this fight. Cat would never use devils, so it's all good. Hell is a serenity, and all the devils are here. That's from William Shakespeare's The Tempest. So, shot in the dark, but when going for predictions about throwaway lines that'll become immediately relevant very soon. Mm -hmm. I like to kill two birds with one crossbow bolt, as they say. Yep. And Nox says, I'm looking forward to you, Catherine, running that pretentious little princeling down. Hells, I'd take a pot shot at him myself if I thought it would work. What a fun little comment for him to make. Huh. Um. Anyway, some goblins show up. Yep. And Catherine looks at them, and her vision sharpens with barely a thought. I may be wrong here, but I think that's the first time we see her sharpen her vision with a name. She has a little night vision. She has a little... She sees good. 
But here she actually zoom in, enhance, zoom in, enhance, enhance again, the goblins. I think that's a first. So cool. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, like you said, there are definitely moments where she comments on her eyesight being nice. But uh, yeah, I think this this is the first time I remember it showing up. And I feel like we would have commented on it before. So yeah. And it's sort of not really, they're not really making a big deal about it. She just sharpens her vision to see better. And she says the goblins are relatively young looking, probably closer to 10 than 15, if she had to wager. I think this might be a first too. I don't think the goblin lifespan was so plain before now. It could be a second, but I think it's a mm, first. I think it, oh man, we definitely discussed goblin lifespans a couple of times but I'm pretty sure there's a reference to that's why goblin lifespans are so short from Z's. We do discuss a lot of things, though. But Z's definitely I would be shocked that, if we discussed right. how the Saint of Swords gets aged to death as she tries to kill right. Archer again. So we've definitely discussed the numbers, and Z's definitely says that they have short lifespans. I don't know if the exact numbers are mentioned before now. Short and fourth grader are different to me. Short lifespan? Okay. 15, maybe. 10-year-old... 10-year-olds are reading boxcar children and watching Pokemon. And scouting for the army. No, I think they're just being courted by army recruiters in U.S. public schools. Now, now, now. Recruiters don't start until the kids can at least lie, convincingly lie about being almost kind of 18. I was in a privileged district, so we didn't have recruiters. It's Yikes. a broken system. But the goblins show up to tell Cat that there are wolf riders here from um, the nearby village uh, to escort Cat to a an early war council with Black and the other generals. Um, the Black Knight? The Black Knight himself, Amadeus of the Green Stretch. Um, and Cat begrudgingly agrees to head off with them uh, to the sort of amusement of Nillen and Nock. Well, Nock at least. I think Nillen is too much of a bridge enthusiast, enthusiast to be amused by anything. Nock, who I remind you is a big old orc, manages to wave airily and says, have fun, as Catherine goes off to see one of the greatest people in the world. Not great in terms of power, but that too. But great in just, he is a fun time. And Catherine says, my teacher's a lot of things, Nock. Fun is, unfortunately, not one of them. And just everyone listening, I want to take an informal poll on this. Do you agree with Catherine? Is he, in fact, not fun? Raise your hand if you think the Black Knight isn't fun. No one did. Great. He's fun. I mean, this is the guy that stabbed someone. Uh, specifically his own apprentice, and said, don't die. Like, come on, he's a barrel of laughs. But Cat heads off and reaches the village of Harper's Crossing, and specifically the inns there, which are the uh, headquarters for the 6th and 9th legions, where she runs into an old acquaintance. Oh, I'd argue that's more of an old employee-in-law. But it's <laughs> Lieutenant Abasse, whom you may remember from... Book 1, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. This is the member of the Blackguards who taught her the warrior's salute, who taught her the words for goat husband, but it's bad in that language. It, it It's Lieutenant Abbasi. We like him. 
Pat catches up a little bit. There's um, some friendly discussion back and forth. Uh, Pat gauges Black's mood, finds out that there have been some assassination. Well, not assassinations. Cat finds out there have been a few assassins hanging out in the camp. Uh, and then she goes in to see Dad. Okay, friendly uh, chatter is done with. Can we get to the reunion? Oh reunion, reunion, gosh, reunion. Yes, she goes into the inn, and Amadeus of the Green Stretch, the Black Knight, rises, smiles at her, comes towards him, greets her warmly, and then hugs her. And, I mean, I don't... Hey, shut up. I'm not crying. You're crying. This scene is phenomenal, but I... Oh, it's so good. I like. I forget sometimes when they're having their banter over scrying or cats plotting to overthrow all of praise, yada yada yada, whatever it is she's doing. Who knows these days? That they're just a happy family, you know, and they get along, and there's no unhealthy dynamics at all here. They hug each other, and that's great. I can just imagine him standing up and grabbing her, her head being shoved into his chest as she... Oh, Oops. wait, nope. <laughs> Catherine reports, I was almost as tall as he was now, I noticed. I must have grown without noticing. Not that standing higher than black would be much of an accomplishment. And one, sick burn, Catherine. It just lights him up. <laughs> which is also how their relationship goes. Mm -hmm. They express their love for each other, and then Catherine somehow destroys him. But... I don't think she actually got taller. Her name has calcified her. I don't care that the text is not going to back me up on this. Her name has calcified her entirely. She is a short pre-queen. But rather, remember the last time we saw Black? He was having a little spat with his bestie. Mm -hmm. A squabble. And he is now fundamentally diminished. Black just got shorter, Catherine. Oh, Sorry. Oh, interesting. You think that every time Aliyah condescends at black or argues with him he just shrinks a little bit because he feels bad yeah or not because he feels bad but rather his name his role is made to feel bad by her role and there's actually a dynamic there that's it that's fun that's cute and that's why he already started off short because even though they've gotten along so well and done so well together for so long there will be disagreement like so that's just how it goes is that why she became the uh, the tyrant of the tower and he became the Black Knight because she was taller? If U.S. presidential elections are anything to go by, the taller candidate usually wins. Why does Aliyah, the tallest noble? Um, yeah, so she, 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 we get this reunion with Black and Captain's here too. Saba is here. Uh, come to find out, she's actually just here to say hi to Cat before she leaves, which is adorable. Aww. I know. Um, but they both comment on the fact that Kat doesn't seem very tense, and uh, apparently they've had a bet going, whether she ends up with Ratface or Kanga. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's great, haha, -ha. her, her dad and her aunt are making fun of her little girlfriend, or the fact that she has a little girlfriend. Um, but it's also very funny to me that they know enough to have picked two, the two likely candidates for Kat's uh, romantic involvement here but they don't know enough to know which one it was uh i do they... want to point out that neither of them caught her flirtation with pickler true yeah so they have been missing a few details here or there uh so it makes so part of me is wondering did they just pick the two hot people in cat's company or did they 
actually like did they know enough to know that those were the people cat was looking at <laughs> and either way it's very funny that they were keeping that kind of eye on what's going on here black for a normal reason you know he's got some things to discuss later but the fact that they had a bet on it is very funny i mean keeping an eye on the whole thing that's just i think it's not too indecent to say that's just a kind of voyeuristic interest in somebody else's life but either way you're going to want to keep an eye on Ratface, right the narrative insists upon it everybody keeps an eye on Ratface at all times uh yeah we he's mentioned here so of course the trend continues we get reminded that he's just so hot he's mentioned in the dialogue and then as cat is internally discussing with herself the pros and cons there the first thing she says about Ratface is he was nice enough to look at. Just anytime he gets mentioned, we have to be told. And he was hot. It's a special kind of hot for everyone to be forced to mention it every time they talk it's about you. Constant, yeah. <laughs> That's like I'm somebody's D and D character levels of and so I walk up and remember I'm really hot. So I say come on. <laughs> yeah. The narrative, the the in-world narrative is constantly reminding people he's hot, so they have to mention it. And somehow he's not the protagonist. Right. Uh, however, Catherine is worried that her paternal and avuncular, antvuncular figure won't approve. Yikes. Because, thank you, she's entangled with someone who isn't named. Like, that's a big deal to them. And Black just says... I'm not unduly worried. It's not without precedent. And Captain brings up, Wakesa's husband might be a devil, but Amna isn't, whom I remind you, and by remind you, and whom I remind you from your previous rereads, is her husband. Like, that's, I just feel like Catherine's in a m- much lower stakes coming out to her parent moment with her lesbian aunt standing there. Right. <laughs> It's yeah. clearly not the end of the world here. <laughs> it's uh it is good because Kat, you know, you reminded us that uh Captain is married, but Kat is reminded as well. She says that she sometimes forgets that Captain is married because Saba rarely mentions her husband or her children. And I just really like the vibe here that, you know, obviously Saba loves Amadeus. Like they're very they're so close and uh all the calamities are in some way or another linked to each other like that um but at the end of the day for saba the calamities service to the empire all of this it's her job these are her co-workers she's not at work talking about her family all the time she's got a nice work-life balance here you know she's hanging out now she's gonna leave because her she's done for the day she's black second she's his captain and also She's got her own life with her husband, who's a minor to grab bureaucrat, uh, and her kids, and they're just sort of... Support them. Right. It's great. Saba is amazing, and this is just more evidence of that fact. I choose to believe that as she was getting ready to fight the champion and the domain was going up, she realized that it was after work hours. She clocked out and went home. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's a great headcanon, but... Can we move on? I don't want to be sad during this chapter. It's a happy one. And All right. Uh, but as you said, Saba, who dies terribly pretty soon, mm-hmm. had just showed up to see Catherine. 
says hello, claps her shoulder, and then leaves because she has business to deal with and just came to say hi. She took time out of her day to say hi. She didn't come in from the other room. She was waiting for Catherine and has work to be done. And she gets murdered by the champion. Uh, gosh, yes, she does. And yes, she did. But reverse order, not not respective there. Um, yes, she will did. Yes, she will did. But she's leaving because Black and Cat are starting to get down to a little bit of business um, before the real council. Uh, he wanted her here early to discuss something with her, which is that the Principate is assembling a host. Uh, Klaus Poppenheim is going to be leading it. There's a whole bit of discussion here, but I really enjoy the language used that they are assembling a host. Um, they're not recruiting an army or calling up levies. It's not a host. It's a, or it's not an army. It's a host. It's assembling. It's very prosser and coming from Black, who's got this very professional army of people who serve for a long time in this strict hierarchy. And Klaus is over there having to pull together disparate warrior bands to... Uh, work together you know he's i just i really like the language that helps set the tone for the different culture military cultures between the the principate and the the empire here fully agreed long considered and matched one-to-one in your opinion so i have nothing to add sure but um catherine recognizes the name klaus poppenheim and says the first prince's uncle prince of hanovin right black says she's right Arguably her staunchest supporter, as well as one of her best generals. Uh, yep, that is... <laughs> the only argument present here is, well, I suppose Agnes Hassenbach is as loyal, or perhaps Cordelia supports herself roughly the same amount as Klaus. But, yep, Poppenheim is, as they say, always popping off. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole sentence is definitely... Black couches things unnecessarily. Arguably her strongest supporter and one of her best generals. I, I think it's pretty well established that he is her best. He may not be the best in the entire Principate. I, I mean, that's not really possible to say. But among Cordelia's generals, like people that you would call hers, it's nobody else is Klaus Poppenheim. It's definitely him for both of these things. I would love to make a transition here talking about speaking of couching language let's talk about furniture but the furniture in question is in fact in the next chapter so dang everyone keep this transition in mind and just credit me when we mention furniture next chapter remember what was said just now remember also that the red snake wall is the best thing mm-hmm Catherine says, as if the Dominion is going to be impressed by a few thousand footmen standing around awkwardly, their wall would literally eat them if they tried anything. And Black says, it would if they assaulted it. I want to see the Red Snake Wall. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, literally eat them? <laughs> There's something going on here. <laughs> Perhaps something even not entirely natural. Oh, you think so? I mean, we know a little bit about the Red Snake Wall, like a little bit about its origins, but I'm so curious about, is it just a big snake? <laughs> because now, I mean, <laughs> wait, is it just a big snake? Is the Red Snake Wall just full of snakes? Just full of proser and soldiers? Well, it will be shortly. 
Yeah. That all acknowledged, Catherine notes that this is a really expensive endeavor, and of Cordelia Hassenbach, who I remember as a broken, feral woman clutching an angel nuke, and <laughs> this is one reason why I'm so deeply attracted to her. Mm-hmm. Of her, Black says, her treasury can weather it. It might be a different story if she went on a protracted campaign, but she won't have to. Mm-hmm. Yet. But also, uh, her treasury can weather it? Prosser has money right now. What? It's wild. I mean, I distinctly remember the era of every time we get a Cordelia perspective chapter or interlude, there's at least a couple paragraphs devoted to, now who am I getting loans from and where am I getting my grain from? I'm so poor. (laughs) You found an old law that technically gives me the rights to sell off grain futures and the... Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, she's constantly pulling these like political miracles just to feed her armies and her people. And here it's, ah, she can weather having a bunch of soldiers standing around doing nothing and using all of the boats in the Western Principate as a bluff. No problem. But, you know, Prosser is one of the richer nations. Yeah, uh, apparently, according to Black, it's the second wealthiest nation in Colernia. And I think we all know that the first is the... The Dread Empire of Praise, yes. Golden Bloom? Because gold's it, like money? Join us next time on Podcast Guys <laughs> Talking Erratic Errata, where you're only going to have one host. Yeah, that's fair. I see how you <laughs> saw that pun dangling there. Uh-huh. And I know it was an easy target, but did you really have to pull the trigger? And that was pretty good. Cat uh, uses that... Oh, actually, sorry. Black uses that phrase. He says that she's willing to pull the trigger. And I think it's fun to think about the fact that that phrase exists in Colernia um, and that it would almost 100% be because of crossbows rather than guns as it is in the modern world. Um, and also, I, it's, just, it's neat to, to have that same exact phrase work with a different weapon, uh, even though if you think about how crossbows work, you, there's not really a lot of trigger pulling but it's close enough that the the line is there it's just a it's a pretty fun little phrase to show up we then learn a lot about the dominion government which is tribal more or less or tribal's not a bad word for it they're various branches descended from founding heroes Mm -hmm. and the heads of these branches form a ruling council who selects the big ruler, who's not really necessarily the state embodied. And that's all well and good, but that system means that the Dominion doesn't even now stand united against Prosser, and the one element that does will fold when the time comes. Which means Hassenbach's last foreign liability after that will be Heliki, and that she will be able to muzzle through a vote of the League. Or so Black says, at least, and, uh, you know, I apologize in advance for what I'm about to say, but... This, How dare you? This is a weird case in the guide of somebody somehow managing to overestimate Cordelia, um, saying that just with confidence, she will be able to muzzle Halika. Uh, and I gotta say, would have been an interesting story if she had managed, or a less interesting story, rather. It would have been a less interesting story if she had fully managed that. Um, so Black just assumes that she's going to be able to do something here, and, I don't know, normally 
Cordelia can just do everything, so kind of a, a weird moment. I gotta say, though, what a woman to just inspire such confidence in her enemies that, oh, yeah, she'll absolutely coordinate a vote in a foreign state to her interests swiftly and unerringly. Especially when the vote is intended to restrain a named ruler who, historically speaking, is one that is a special breed of competent, if uh, Nock is to be beefed. Good for Cordelia. And good for Calernia. But only because she didn't actually pull the trigger. Right. But all this means is time is running out, and the rebellion must be over before summer is over. And, uh, my friends, I think things are just beginning to heat up. Oh my gosh. Uh, and just like time is running out for Calernia, uh, it's also running out for us, because we don't have any more of it today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Manumission. Manslaughter. And manuscripts. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Enter music for this episode with Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. The classic and elegant music for the epigraph was Classic and Elegant Fantasy Tale by Wojtek Pavlik. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by writing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access a fair number of, you know, scraps. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fane Knight, our patron and mentor, the Traveling Teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, as well as a secret patron, not yet named, and the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 15, Council. <laughs>